please pronounce your name correctly for me? My name is Carol Milne. Rhymes with kiln, but some people pronounce kiln kill, so. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> yeah. It's a kind of a British thing, but. Huh. Interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. Now, you and I ha have crossed paths almost in the because we both went to the University of Iowa. Mm -hmm. What brought you to the University of Iowa? Because you're not a writer, which they're known for their writing workshop. No, my husband is from Iowa and we moved back from Seattle to Iowa so I could go to grad school. And then I decided to go to the University of Iowa because it was in-state tuition. <laughs> you know, it really wasn't the best way to choose a school, but it wasn't terrible. I was doing a master's in sculpture and the head of the sculpture program at that time was a macho jerk, really terrible man. But my fellow students were great. The other classes were great. I learned a lot about things I wasn't expecting to learn about <laughs> and ended up after four semesters, a group of us went to the dean and said, you know, this guy is awful. He's abusive and nasty. And he had tenure, so they couldn't fire him. So we put together all these safety violations and he was reprimanded. So they wouldn't let him use, couldn't cast metal at the school. So at this time I had quit, but I heard like the next year he's taking his students out to a barn in the, to cast metal, which was probably even less safe. But anyway, sculpture does tend to attract the macho jerks of the art world. And he was one of them. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. But they had, they had lovely facilities. I remember being very oh, envious yeah. of their sculpture facility. It was beautiful place. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, the undergraduate professor when I was there, David Jokinen, was fabulous. I mean, he was a wonderful human being and I learned a lot from him. So it wasn't a total waste of time. Yeah. I, I had a horrible teacher while I was there. It was, she was an adjunct, not a, I don't even, and I have no idea what her name was. She gave us this assignment and I worked my butt off for this thing because I'm a horrible uh, illustrator. Like I can't draw to save my life. And of course it was a drawing class. So I'm trying to draw and I put so much effort into this thing. And I, and I got it really to the point that I thought it was really lovely. I put it up in class for the critique and she goes, yeah, that's wrong. And I was, oh. like, I was like, wrong. Like, how can you use the word wrong for anything. So like I ended up complaining to the dean and it turns out that she had had other people complain about basically, it sounds so stupid and subtle, but like vocabulary issues where she sort of told students you're doing that wrong. And I'm like, it's not wrong. It's just not necessarily what you think is right. <laughs> right. Well, art is one of those. I mean, it's not something that there's a right or a wrong. There really isn't. It's just a lot of its preference and it's debatable. I mean, there are some right and wrong things within the, you know, as far as like craftsmanship and techniques and things like this. But like, but when she said the piece was wrong, I'm just like, fuck you. So, <laughs> I, I so you fire. didn't last there either, huh? <laughs> I, well, I finished my degree there. So oh, yeah, it was you. fine. Yeah. yeah. I just remember having to take an art history class with some professor, I can't remember his name, that loved Etruscan mirrors. And it was his specialty. We were doing like an art history course and he went on for like two weeks of an art history lecture just on Etruscan mirrors. <laughs> <sighs> well, he's good. He's passionate about something, right? But <laughs> yeah, we all have our... <laughs> 
Yeah, the other art history professor had a specialization in pre-Columbian art, which was actually much more fascinating. So anyways, <laughs> enough griping about the University of Iowa. So going, going back to you, uh, how did you become creative in the first place? I'm always interested, like how people get created. So your parents, like your, your schooling, like what led you down the creative path in the first place? Boy, I, I don't know. I've always been a maker. I mean, I learned through using my hands. I suppose we moved a lot when I was a kid. We like lived at 18 different addresses in my first 18 years. So that's um, a I, lot. It's a lot. My dad was in the oil industry. He was a troubleshooter, you know, engineer. Once a plant was built, he would go in and figure out, you know, get it running. And, you know, initially every nine months we're somewhere else. Being an introvert, I think I didn't have a consistent friend group growing up. And my mom is super creative. You know, she's not an artist per se, but she's a very great improviser with life. You know, whatever's thrown her way, she just makes it work, right? You know, moving 18 times, she was the homemaker who had to set up every time we moved. We didn't bring a lot of stuff with us. So she'd go to garage sales and buy furniture and refinish things and pull stuff together. So there was a lot of making in my family, you know, making things. Just to be clear, this was in Canada, correct? No. I mean, I was born in Canada, but at least 10 of those years, we lived in the States. My sister was born in Germany. We lived in Texas and Puerto Rico and Iowa and New Jersey and New York City. And I mean, a lot of places, <laughs> a lot of moving. We moved back to Canada when I was probably 12 and I finished high school and in Canada and, and college. And now you're in Seattle, correct? Yes. Been in Seattle a long time. I love good, Seattle. I got one thing right. That's good. Ah. <laughs> so what what drew you to Seattle? It seems like there's a very strong glass culture in Seattle for some odd reason. There is. We thank Dale Chihuly for that. But I wasn't into glass when I first moved here. I took landscape architecture in school, and in my senior year, I really became more interested in earthworks and kinetic art and sculpture in the landscape. I met my husband at a landscape architecture conference in Iowa, but he's not a landscape architect. He was visiting a friend. The friend moved to Seattle and we moved to Seattle to be near his friend. And also there's a lot of art. You know, Seattle was one of the first places to have 1% for the arts as part of the government program. That brought us here and we just stayed except for a brief interlude when I went back to grad school and then came back. You know, I, I do love Seattle. So this is where I, you know, introduced into glass. We were driving along the highway and there was an open house at Hillchuck Glass School. And I was pretty, we stopped in and was pretty captivated. That's it. Just driving along the road, walked yeah. into an open house, <laughs> found a new career. Like, yeah, well, I did, but I didn't because I couldn't afford to take classes at Pilchuck. You know, it was pretty expensive even back then. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to get a scholarship. So I didn't really start doing glass for another 10 years after I was introduced to it. It's probably good because if I had started when I first saw it, I would have been blowing glass and I would have been making different things, you know. Right. Which leads to the obvious question of like, you are by your own words, according to your website, let me find the right words the lone pioneer of the field of <laughs> knitted glass. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? It makes me laugh. <laughs> I can't tell if it's being self-deprecating or being like really proud and sincere. <laughs> like, but... 
I like that edge that you don't know. <laughs> I'm a very big fan of wordplay and puns. And I like that you maybe don't know which. That's good. It's funny what, you know, you make plans to do this and do that. And then, you know, life doesn't always bring you where you expected. But what I found interesting is that I was a big knitter as a kid and well, still am, but that that came back and I incorporated it into glass in a way that I wouldn't have if I hadn't had that background, you know, but I love to knit and I love what happens when you knit with glass. You see more of the structure and it's not the soft cuddle. You're laughing. Okay. What are you laughing about? <laughs> I'm laughing at the fact that you said, you know, when you knit with glass, like I will not kid you. Like, <laughs> when I pictured this, like, so without looking into more of like your process and all this, I was thinking knit with glass. I'm like, oh, okay. I thought you like took hot rods and literally like knit with the hot rods. And I'm just like, oh, oh no, it's cast glass. Okay. Totally different. <laughs> I know it's, it's much more boring. <laughs> cast glass is this really long and stupid and labor intensive. But I've always thought I need to get some kind of PR shot that makes it look like I'm actually knitting with the molten rods, because that's what most people think, right? They don't know, they don't understand about glass. And I just think that's funny. Well, I mean, as an, as an ironic thing, like, could that even be done? Not easily, because glass kind of goes from molten, you know, where it's really runny to stiff that you can't move it really quickly. And some glass has a longer working life, but when you watch somebody blowing glass, they heat it up, they move it a little bit, they heat it up, they move it a little bit, and you'd have to do something like that. And it would be really difficult. And especially because knitting involves pulling pieces through loops. To do that with hot glass, I think probably nearly impossible. I agree. And that's why I was very surprised. I was like, how is she doing this? Because like, that seems impossible. My mother yeah. knits. So like, I know enough about knitting to be dangerous, but that's about uh -huh. it. Yeah. The process is, you know, you're just pulling loops through loops. So I actually knit in wax. I have this long stringy wax and I make a mold around the wax and melt the wax out of the mold and the mold goes in a kiln and I melt glass into the space and break the mold apart. It's, you know, the way they do bronze casting, except everything's one off with this. It's kind of stupid, but I'm kind of obsessed. I mean, I, I you got to be obsessed to do stupid things. <laughs> You've got to be obsessed to sort of to just be in the arts world, because like, if you're well, not loving what you do, you kind of should get out of the industry. You know, that's really true. I mean, my daughters are both really creative and I think one of them at least would have liked me to push her more to go into art, but I don't think anybody can push you into going into art and they shouldn't. If you're not really compelled to make things and you can't not make things, then for, there's a lot easier ways to make a living or to live your life, you know? Yes. Yeah. Being creative in the arts is one of the more anxiety ridden and and sort of just like just self-conscious like careers i could ever imagine you know i mean and i would say that in like being an actor a writer a musician a visual artist doesn't matter any any of those fields is like they are not for the faint of heart or the soft skinned no no definitely not i mean i i wouldn't change things but then you know i have a husband with a job which has really helped me because most people won't tell you that, but you really need a patron or you need to be independently wealthy 
you need some other way to make money that's going to sustain you. I mean, I feel for a lot of artists because there's so many books out there that say, oh, how to market yourself and make it in the art world. And it's not that easy. It's a stupid career as a business. Really, it isn't a business. I mean, you can try to make it one and you can have a website and try to sell stuff. But, you know, that doesn't mean you're going to sell enough to feed yourself. You know, it's... <laughs> well, you, you do have a website where you have things for sale and you work I with do. galleries. I do. And and I always wonder because like uh, there's always these debates of like, should you as an artist create your own e-shop or should you not? Should you put prices out in the world? Should you not? Like they're always yeah. like, you know, and some people will say, absolutely do this. And then another next person will say, under no circumstances should you do that thing. Like, yeah. There's no consistency to it. And it drives me nuts. Like there's so many things in the arts world that I wish had some sense of consistency. You're right. And I didn't have prices for the longest time. And then I, I thought, well, this is insane. If people don't know how much it is, some people are afraid to ask. I think what it is, the art market, it really isn't regulated. So you go to big galleries in New York and they're selling stuff for millions of dollars. Well, that's the price tag they're showing you. You know, maybe there's, a, you know, there's all these other deals that people are getting discounts and it's just so, I, I just hate that. I just want to put the price on and you either want it or you don't want it. And my work is expensive, but my work takes a lot of time. If I'm going to give it away, I'll give it away. If I'm going to sell it, I'm going to sell it for what I have put into it. I don't, I looked at the prices and I wouldn't say the prices are horribly expensive. I think you're pretty moderately priced, but of course I'm also very bad with scale. So maybe I'm getting the scale wrong. Maybe they're much larger than I think they are or smaller than I think they are. But I think your prices are, are mid, mid level. They're not outrageous. I just have started putting more, especially since COVID. I price my stuff the same as a gallery would. So if a gallery sells it, I only get half. I'm probably not making enough money in that case. But, you know, how do you judge what, to me, really, it's about communicating and finding an audience. And you don't do that by making your work in a little room and keeping your work in the little room. You know, you have to get your work out into the world. And at least that's my opinion. I mean, some people make art as navel gazing. And for me, it's communication. And, and you've done a pretty good job of it. You have your work in a number of collections and museums and you've done some shows and museums and things like this. So like you, you've done a pretty good job of placing them around in the sort of the right places. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's intentional. It just happened, happened that way. <laughs> you just have to keep doing it. Right. I mean, artists are the most sensitive people in the world. And yet if you don't keep putting yourself out there and getting rejected, you're never going to get accepted. I'm just cracking you up, aren't I? <laughs> Nobody you can are. hear you laugh, but I can see you laughing. <laughs> I intentionally do this like quiet laugh because I don't want to interrupt the audio quality. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's true that we are like, uh, it's funny, like I'm overly sensitive in many aspects of my life and I'm I'm totally insensitive in other parts of my life. You know, when it comes to my art, I'm super sensitive 
like while I'm still making it and all that. But like as soon as I have decided I, that I'm proud of it for whatever reason and like it's out in public, then I'm not sensitive about it anymore because like I feel strong about it, strong enough to put it out into the world. But prior to that, studio visits or people seeing things half done, I'm always like, oh God, please don't give me feedback on this shit because it's nowhere near done. Like just no. Yeah, it, it's, it's tough. I think, you know, anytime I go look at art galleries, maybe I like 1% of the work that's out there. So I, I figure if 99% of the people who see my work don't respond to it, eh, yeah, they're not my people. And, and, you know, I have to accept that not everyone is going to be my people. I mean, knitting really is a, I've put myself in this old lady category. Yeah, your work is very niche. I mean, it's it's a, yeah. a, a combination of <laughs> nice glass way. arts. Thank you. It's it's a combination of glass arts, which is niche, and fiber arts slash specifically knitting, which is also very niche. So you have like this super niche. I mean, you're at the top of your field in that niche thing <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess it's very strange, but you got to embrace that, right? I started making glass work thinking that my people would be glass people. And really, my people are middle-aged women who knit. And I think that's great because if the people who like respond to your work, if you're too snobby to say, uh, you, I don't like you, then you've just right there, you've cut off your audience. If your audience isn't who you expect they are, you, you need to embrace that and say, oh, this is interesting. These are my people. And huh, I didn't know that. And that's okay. We're not all going to be the top of the tier who, who gets the fancy art collectors loving us. And that's okay. Well, and that, that's an interesting dilemma because like, I always wonder about like, how do you find like, not just how do you find them, but like, where do you, so for you as a, a niche, you know, knitting slash glass artist like where are your collectors so like what's the the geographical location of people sorry is it europe is it asia is it americas well mostly the u.s but all over i mean i had a gallery in belgium for a while she closed because of covid so i have collectors in europe it's pretty the internet really makes it possible for us to reach an audience all over the place and that is amazing. If you're willing to put yourself out there, it doesn't matter what you're making. You're going to find somebody who responds to your work. That's actually pretty fabulous. doesn't mean they're going to buy it, but if they respond to it, we don't really have a way. If every time somebody looked at an artist's website, they paid a penny, then artists probably would be doing pretty well. But we don't have a, a way for somebody to appreciate you in a minor way, except maybe Patreon, but that's a, you know, you know, they look at it and they love it, but they can't afford it. So they walk away. And a lot of the stuff that you love, you, you're never going to buy, but I think it's valuable for the world to have it. Right. So there's just not really a funding mechanism to keep artists going, except, you know, just their internal <laughs> drive. <laughs> It's a sad state of affairs. I mean, uh, admittedly, it's worse in America 
and, it, and it's a little bit better in Europe. In Europe, there's a lot of funding, like government or corporation or EU or any of those kinds of things. In America, it's just like the middle class has sort of gone away. The, the, the granting and support patronage system has very much become like, you know, high end people are, are always getting opportunities. And then there's low end sort of local $500 things. And there's very little in the middle. As far as mm -hmm. like just being able to being working artist kind of grants, yeah, yeah, and, and that's very is unfortunate. Better. Is Canada? I would I would imagine Canada would be better. I think it's like it's the. I mean, that's how the U.S. work ethic is, right? It's all competition. Work, work yes, hard. You know, the hard people are gonna rise to the top. The fact of the matter is, as an artist, you're probably not going to make any money for twenty years. <laughs> So what happens in that meantime, you know, you might get a teaching gig, but they're few and far between now. You know, there's some, we're pumping out so many MFAs that there's not a lot of opportunity for teaching. So. Well, it's not no. even that it's not the, just the opportunities for teaching. It's the opportunities for teaching that like most of the like, quote unquote, like good ones, you would have to literally pick up your whole life and move to that other place. So like maybe they're either not in a desirable place or they're in a very expensive place. And yeah. so like one way or another, they're, they're not really, while the job is beneficial, but there might be other criteria around it that are not super beneficial to your career. Cause like you're in Seattle, great location. You probably have a beautiful setup there. And so like the idea of going to teach somewhere, like you'd have to leave everything you've built there and <laughs> rebuild it somewhere else. And like, ugh. well, I teach workshops, but a workshop, even if the workshop is a week, it's really three weeks because it takes me a week to prepare and I have to travel and then I'm there for a week and then I come back and I have to get back into things. And teaching is, if you do it well, it takes as much energy as making art. So then you're like, most jobs are either full time or nothing. And a lot of people end up just teaching and never making art again. And not yeah. that there's anything wrong with that, but it is a dilemma. If you, if you set out wanting to make art and you're passionate about it, but you have to feed yourself and you get a job that keeps you from doing, you know, vicious circle. Just to be clear, in case you didn't know, I am a professor also. <laughs> Oh, okay. So you know what, but hey, maybe your podcast is your art now. It's an extension of, of both my teaching and my art. So it's yeah. a little bit of both. I, I, I'm starting to come to the point where I'm getting to calling this podcast my research. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. I thought that was a good word for it. Very academic, very intellectual. Makes me sound, <laughs> makes me, makes me sound more, a little bit more pompous. Well, there's, there's a lot of things people don't talk about in art. You know, they don't talk about the money. They don't talk about making a living. They don't talk about, you know, what if you don't sell stuff? You know, this is like you said, people being so reluctant to post prices. Artists don't want to think of art as a commodity. But in fact, it is a commodity. And if you don't put a price on it, somebody else is going to. 
Well, once it's it's completed and out in the world, it's a commodity. As long as it's sort of still in your studio and you're still creating it, you're still thinking about it, it's not a commodity. But once it's been completed and handed out into the world, it becomes a commodity, whether we like it or not. Because like even installation arts or even performance arts that are then, you know, filmed and then that film is then sold or whatever. Like so like once you put it out into the world, it's a commodity whether we like it or not. And a mm-hmm. lot of us don't accept that. I'm perfectly fine with it. I come from a photography background. My father did painting and other kinds of things like this. So like I'm good with the idea of creating a beautiful object and then putting it up for exhibition and sale. Like that's my that's I'm all for that. Yeah. Well, it's weird because I don't think any of us start out thinking we're entrepreneurs. <laughs> right? We're making we make something and you know, you just make another thing because you love it or you want to express ideas. And and then, especially if you're a sculptor, it's like, holy mackerel, I have so much work here. What am I going to do with it? You know, so I've, you got to. Well, that's a huge question that I always have for all sculptors is like, so what do you do about the storage for all this? Oh, oh my God. Yeah, I have a basement full of stuff and glass especially needs to be you need to be careful about it. So I build crates, wooden crates with three inches of foam around all my artwork. So even though my individual pieces are not very big, the crates are huge. And I have some stuff I don't have crates for. And uh, Let's just hope there isn't an earthquake in Seattle anytime soon because yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of glass in my studio and a lot of glass up high and uh, well. I don't know. It's, it's a dilemma. I don't believe you're on a fault line there. I think you're safe. <laughs> Are you on I, a fault line? Seattle? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Definitely. We're due for a big one. Let's hope oh, okay. no time soon. I've only experienced a few small earthquakes, but uh, you can't live your life being worried about the future too much. No, not really. But let's get back to the money thing. I love yeah. talking about money. It's uh, like when I was a kid, my parents used to always say, like, you get 10 bankers together, they talk about art. You get 10 artists together, they talk about money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's true. It's a tough. I mean, I just want to make work, right? I don't really want to think about the money. But initially, my husband and I, because I didn't have a career per se, he could work. We had an agreement that until the kids, we have two daughters, until they went to school that I would stay home with them because it didn't make sense for me to make nothing and pay for childcare. That's another beef. There's so many women artists, especially who don't have children. A lot of it has to do with childcare. It's so ridiculously expensive in this country that if you want to work and you have children, most women don't. They just will say, I'm not going to have children because I can't afford it. What ends up being basically a wash because the amount of money you earn by having a job is the same that you'll pay somebody to do childcare. And so you end up earning nothing except that you just had the freedom to get out of the house for a little while. Right. Right. Which, you know, that's, that's a valuable thing. (laughs) In, in hindsight now, now with COVID, the idea of getting out of the house is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I haven't, I haven't minded it that much, which is strange. I'm glad my studio is at home. I just kept working. It helps I'm an introvert. So it wasn't that different except my daughter and my husband and my daughter's boyfriend 
all work from home now. So it's that's been an adjustment. So going back to the money stuff, so like you basically have the luxury of having a a household where basically you're supported in some way. I mean, part of the thing is is like it's no matter how much money we put in, we're never technically going to get it all back because we put so much time and testing and all this other stuff and like unless you start selling for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're never going to recoup all the time and energy and resources you put in. I mean, it is possible to do that, but generally most of us are not going to. I mean, like the last series I I produced, it took me three years worth of testing before I even got to the point that I was ready to produce the work. And then another three years of producing the work. It's like six years worth of work. I mean, yeah, it was part-time because I had a teaching job the whole time. So like, I get it. But like, it's a really tough industry when it comes to that kind of stuff. But you've done it pretty well, it seems like, because you've got galleries that represent you. And then you also do workshops and you've got other sort of sources of income, which it seems like the model that's come up these days, which is basically, uh, you know, a diverse model. Well, that's the way you have to do it, right? I I think I look really good on paper. (laughs) You do, yeah. You know, when our kids were little, we had bought a house and we bought the ugly house, but it had a little house in the backyard, like 300 square feet. So when they were small, I remodeled that and it was started out as a bed and breakfast and now it's just a regular rental. But whatever I made from that, that was what I allowed myself to spend on my art. So even when I wasn't making money, I had this, say, $500 a month that could go to materials. So even though my husband doesn't, you know, never thinks of me as a drain on our family resources or anything, in my mind, I was at least not spending more than I was bringing in. And, you know, I'm, I'm making some money now, but, you know, I couldn't afford to have a studio in Seattle on the money. You know, my best year, I netted $50,000. No, no, gross, gross, not net, gross. Before taxes, before paying for materials. And, you know, so I'm maybe making a dollar an hour, you know, when it comes down to it. But it's not about the money. It's to me, it's just about staying above water. So I'm not sinking our family and and still able to make what I love to make. And it's hard because I think there are too many people saying, oh, you can make it as an artist. And yet without giving you know, like, I didn't have any business training in art school. You know, the, the teachers didn't know how to make a living as an artist. So that's why they were teaching. Then they're saying, oh, go out there. You're going to sell your work in this gallery. And, you know, you're going to be, we can't all be, you know, represented by David Swimmer or whoever, you know, those fancy names. And that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast is basically like I sat back and I'm like, you know what? None of my professors prepared me for the reality of being an artist. Like I, you know, as you said, like basically most professors aren't professional artists, like they're professional professors. Mm -hmm. And I I don't knock them for that because I do that. But, (laughs) but I mean, they don't know how the art world works. And so like, so I, I sat back and I was just like, well, how can I figure out how the art world works? So if I'm going to be teaching the next generation of artists, I should have some understanding of how the art world works. And what better way to do that than talk to people that are in the art world. So therefore <laughs> I created this podcast. So like, right. that's, the, that's part of the foundation of this is like, if I'm going to be teaching, I better be teaching contemporary knowledge about this instead of what my teachers taught me 20 years ago. 
because it's changed. And there's a lot, you know, art is sold by advertising. And there's a lot of advertising out there that, you know, you get a magazine and it has this fancy artwork on the front and you look at it. And, oh, it's like $300,000. And so there you think, ah, ka-ching, that guy's making money. But just because he's in the magazine doesn't mean he's sold that piece or ever will sell that piece. He's just got somebody willing to back him to try to promote him. And they're promoting themselves at the same time. We tend to see the advertising and think, oh, oh, you know, that could be me. And maybe it could be. Well, I worked at an art gallery in San Francisco and we ran our advertisements in, I forget what it was, Art News or I think, or Art Forum. I can't remember. I think it was Art News. And every single time we ran an ad, the piece that was used in the ad was sold within a week. Wow. So it, wow. it actually does Advertising work. works then. <laughs> well, this is also 20 years ago, so I'm not sure yeah. it still works, but but yeah. it did work. Like it, it did drum up enough interest. And basically it was it was always a, a questionable thing because the advertisement, I remember the advertisements were some ridiculous amount, like $10,000 for a full page ad. And it was always like, if the artist's work was at least $10,000 retail, then it was worth doing the ad. But if the artist was less expensive than that, then it wasn't even worth running the ad because you couldn't right. even recoup your costs for the ad. So right. we didn't use, we didn't even advertise everybody's works because quite honestly, we couldn't recoup the, the money from every artist. Right. So it, it was, it's always a gamble, like all these kinds of things. And, me, and even these days with doing Facebook advertisements or any of the other online advertisements, they're, at this point, there's still a lot of a gamble. Well, Facebook at least is inexpensive gamble. And you can target the audience. Yeah, but it can, it can get expensive if you do it all year. Right, right. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it's it's a tough thing, but I think that good on paper, but that doesn't mean there's money attached, right? I look excellent on paper. I look like <laughs> a super duper academic professional. Uh -huh. Shit, shit. I was the judge on a National Geographic reality competition television show. I mean, come on. Ooh, that's yeah, fantastic. I was in Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> Wow. I did Woo! not see that on your resume. What? Yeah. What for? Wait, what? I didn't see that. Oh, for that. the what? knitted glass. Oh, this was a few years ago. I, they contacted me and I thought, this is hilarious, but it's not what I would expect. It's just funny. Sometimes weird things come up and you just have to say yes to the world, right? Even if it's weird. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Just to be clear, that National Geographic TV show that I was a judge on, it was actually in Arabic. So I was dubbed. <laughs> That's cool. It is cool. I don't know what the Arabic language, what they said in Arabic. I'm just hoping they translated me correctly. <laughs> I have no idea. So That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was a funny experience. Which is, you know, what I hope my life generally is, is lots of fun experiences and well, good stories. Well, life is weird, right? You you set out having lofty goals and then you you might not end up there, but you just have to take it as it comes and be creative with what life sends you and just keep approaching your life as creatively as you do your work, right? It's all one well, I have a question about that. So like when you were starting off, because so you started off as a landscape 
architect? No, landscape. Well, yes. I have a degree in landscape architecture. Yeah. Landscape architecture. Like, but okay. So when you entered the arts field, let's call it, did you have some aspirational goals? Because like when I was a kid, <laughs> I say this like it was so long ago, you know, 20 years ago. I had these aspirational sort of ideas when I said, oh, I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to do this. And this is going to be the the pinnacle of my career. And now, you know, 20 some odd years later, I'm sort of like, nah, nope. I just now I just want to make enough money, have enough time to just do whatever the fuck I want to do and not worry about these things. <laughs> like, yeah. so like. I've changed my sort of aspirational goals in my career. And I'm wondering if that's something that other people experience as well. So I didn't set out to be an artist because there were artists in my family. My aunt was an artist, a painter, and my great grandmother was a painter. And, you know, in the 70s, w smart women were not encouraged to go into art. You know, you're smart. You got to be a doctor or be an engineer or so landscape architecture was kind of an in-between for me, right? It was like, oh, it's not an engineer. Although if I'd gone into music, my dad would have been happy with that, you know, <laughs> but he really wanted me, me to be an engineer. And looking back, I think, wow, I could have used that training because I'm building things now that I don't have the structural understanding, you know, to... Anyway, so I really actively avoided being an artist. And then it just got to a point where I realized every project I do is a creative, you know, it's, I can't just build a floor, you know, it's got to be something weird that I'm learning about materials. You know, I can't, so probably when I was about 30 was when I said, you know, you're an artist, you know, just, you got to just suck it up <laughs> and live with whatever comes your way. So I haven't had any specific career goals. You know, I guess I'd like to be maybe have work in the Corning Museum of Glass because that would mean that I've achieved something in the glass world so that people who work with the same materials as I do appreciate it. But as far as other, you know, I'm I'm not mainstream. I mean, I'm never going to be I, I just am not. You know, I'm I'm the oddball weirdo who and I always have been. I'm not going to be picked up by the Whitney or, you know, some fancy creative, you know, I just don't see myself in that. So I've never even really aspired to it. I just want to be keep making work and learning about the world, you know, through what I'm doing and finding an audience. Yeah. It's Corning and Whitney. Those are your aspirational goals. Got it. <laughs> Whitney, that's like no way. <laughs> You never know, man. They one yeah. year they just might get a curator for the biennial who happens to love like the mix of fine art and craft and you're you're in. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's like whatever. You probably uh, maybe you don't deal with this as much, but the whole debate between craft and art. I was literally about to ask you that. I mean, that just drives me crazy. I am usually put in the craft category. It is important to me that work is well crafted, but it's not enough. You know, I think that whole idea came when Greenberg tried to make art special. So conceptual art made it special so he could sell it for more money. But I don't really care. I want to make stuff that's well crafted. And whether you call it art or not, eh, that's, you know, you're putting it in your own little category and I don't really care. 
Well, that debate and conversation, I find fat. But because the, like, the problem is, is that I think that terms are not specific enough because yeah. in art, there's art. Then, there, of course, there's, you know, time periods, postmodernist, you know, contemporary, whatever. And then there's fine art, which is then like a subgenre of art. But then there's craft, which sometimes is falls into kitsch or or knickknacks as as a as a what that word means and then sometimes mm-hmm. it means craftsmanship or well crafted uh, and so like there's too many variations and, and none of these words are specific enough i mean because like i have a position everybody has their own personal opinion on the position of like cra- <laughs> craft and art like but I, I think the difference is like craftsmanship like my position is basically craft is oftentimes more utilitarian ish and then it can be elevated to the the level of an art mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily that so like you know like somebody who makes a coffee mug that coffee mug can be a craft piece it could also be an art piece but it depends on how far it's been pushed how if it's been elevated either through concept or and or craftsmanship Right. But then there's a lot of art that has great conceptual ideas, but it's so poorly executed that I just think, uh, <laughs> I don't have much, much. I mean, the ideas are important to me, but I really think it's important to make things well. I mean, that's my bias. It's definitely a bias. It's interesting to me also that a lot of what is considered craft was traditionally women's work because, you know, oh. and now... Now a lot of that is becoming like fiber art is really got big resurgence now that you see a lot of the, the quilts from Alabama. I mean, there's a lot of fiber art is now being accepted in the art world, which is in, I like to, I'm glad to see that because I just, because it was traditionally done in the home embroidery or needlepoint or knitting and was traditionally functional. That functional aspect doesn't, just because it's functional doesn't mean it's not worthy of attention and actually creatively made, right? Oh, there's this piece. I had this lady, God, how long ago did I know her? 15 years ago. And she had this amazing art collection, insane. Like she loves ceramic stuff, and like literally every every like counter surface in her entire house, even in drawers that she kept closed, she still had <laughs> stuff like everywhere. And she had this stunning rocking chair that she had had custom made for her, cost her like two thousand five hundred dollars for this custom, and it was absolutely exquisite to look at and even better to sit in absolutely amazing like i would personally like though it is you know under the auspices of this conversation a craft it was an exquisite piece of art because like i loved both looking at it as well as sitting in it like it was gorgeous and i've never forgotten that piece it was so good mayloff probably sam mayloff he did some Incredible. It was in Ohio. That's all I remember. Yeah. Oh, such a good rocking chair. (laughs) Oh, God. 
you know, I mean, like I grew up with like Heller, you know, designed uh, dishware and things like this. Like, so like des- beautiful design, I think is amazing as well as anything else. But it, it's, it's the fact that they, even that I just gave it another term. So now there's craft right. versus design right. versus art. Like, God, I wish well, we it, could come up. It is, I think we all want to establish a hierarchy, right? And I don't think that, I think they can all coexist and, I think if you have a hierarchy, though, maybe you can charge more <laughs> if you're in the fine art category. I mean, I don't know. It's really interesting how that arbitrary hierarchy equates to value. So, like, mm-hmm. theoretically, we should pay more for a painting on a wall than a beautifully crafted set of dishware. Mm-hmm. Even though probably the same amount of time, possibly even more time went into the dishware as far as effort and design than mm-hmm. the piece of art. But yet we value it differently. That that sense of how we value, we'll call it objects, since that's, of course, what we both do. So objects is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a one of a kind thing, right? Is If it's one of a kind, it, it has more value in a way like you have the only one. I don't know, people buy Porsches and they're not one of a kind. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> they're mass produced. <laughs> well, like I recently got start, started fetishizing on um, handmade knives, like kitchen knives. Oh. Like, oh, oh, yeah. God, they're gorgeous. And they're all one of a kind, you know, like not mass produced. Like, oh, so beautiful. Yeah, there's a couple people on Instagram with the uh, fancy handles. And yeah, I've seen oh, those. <laughs> so beautiful. So beautiful. But anyways, all right, let's get back <laughs> enough yeah. of our absurd fetishizations. <laughs> so how has COVID sort of uh, affected you? Because, of course, you do workshops or you did workshops. Now I know you do them online and all this kind of stuff. So like, how has that like been a good thing or a bad thing? Because, of course, I know the idea of doing online workshops has the opportunity to potentially reach a wider audience. Yeah, I, I actually haven't done any teaching online. I've been, done some presentations and lectures, and that's been great. But, it, you know, doing a lecture online, you don't get the feedback, right? So when you tell a joke and nobody laughs, it's like, oh. <laughs> it so is that's, hard. That's been hard. I don't I don't like the not the, having the feedback. I miss teaching, but I don't miss it that much. Mostly I was traveling to teach. So I went, I've gone to some, you know, gone to Istanbul and New Zealand. I mean, that's, that was fabulous because I could travel and teach and at the same time. And I was slated to maybe go to Amsterdam, but that got postponed at least for a while. I don't know if I'll go now, but I, COVID itself, I don't know. I was more, I don't know. The, the past presidency was more of an issue for me than the, than COVID. I mean, I'm so glad that's over. But COVID, you know, since I work at home and I process what happens in the world through working, I just, I've been working like a maniac, really. I was able to finish some pieces that I had in process and I did some new work that that's, it's been really good. I hate to say that because I know COVID's been bad for a lot of people, but I live in a little bubble, right? I have a house. My husband's still employed. I'm comfortable. I hear this very often in the in the creative industries. Like, I mean, in some ways, it's been uh, again. I hate to say it, but like, it's been nice because it's been given us time and space away from other obligations. But I I really feel for 
performance artists and musicians and even glass blowers. A lot of, you know, glass blowers, they work in community facilities and they haven't been able to work. I understand it's been tough for a lot of people. It's weird times. Have you noticed any difference in sales? Lately, things have been down. I mean, I at the beginning of COVID, I did really well. 2020 was a great year for me. Uh, and mostly through my own website, which is even better because then I don't pay commission. <laughs> and lately it's leveled off. I mean, I people are uncertain about what's happening, right? Because the numbers are going back up and down and weird. I, I just wish people would get vaccinated though. That just bothers me. It's like the numbers say that the people who are dying now are the ones who aren't vaccinated. And that's right such there. a shock. Like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but that's become a political thing. It's just, okay, don't, don't get vaccinated. You can die. I don't care. I mean, I hate to say that, but. It's kind of the truth of the matter. Like if you don't yeah. believe in medicine, then you're probably going to die. Like that's mm -hmm. how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm sorry to be blunt about it, but that's yeah. it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, I keep hoping COVID's over, you know, trying to, but it's not over. No, we here in the Czech Republic literally today just got our new state of emergency instigated because we literally have our highest numbers of the oh, entire okay. pandemic now. Oh, wow. Wow. So this wave is the worst wave we have ever had. Which wow. is ridiculous because we're, we've got vaccines. I don't understand right. why this is still happening. Right. Well, Seattle's been pretty good. I mean, we, our governor is very, has, you know, been instigated a lot of shutdowns and was very. Well, and you all are a liberal hub. I mean, I would assume right. there's good vaccination rates up there. Right. It's there the is. It's still non-liberal hubs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it should never have been made a political issue. That's. Agreed. You know, public health. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about something else. <laughs> Agreed. Yes. I grew up in Washington, D.C. So like I there are two topics I generally try not to talk too much about, which is politics and religion. And that's because I grew up in Washington, D.C. and because my father's a minister. So. Oh, you're one of those lucky children. <laughs> I, I am a PK. Yes. Uh huh. Every minister's child I knew was the the most out of control. <laughs> not, I'm not judging you. You might not be in that category at all. <laughs> I have gotten this my whole life. No, it's fine. Uh -huh. I, it, it, within my family, I was the good son. Okay. Good. But that just tells you how bad my brother was because <laughs> I was a drug addict and like toured around with rock and roll bands as a roadie and did all kinds of lost my drive. Like <laughs> when I was 16, I got my driver's license and I was my driver's license was taken away from me by the time I was 16 and two months. Oh, nice. Because of well, reckless driving, speeding, accidents, like all kinds of crazy. Yeah. So like I am a, I was a horrible kid, rebellious, outrageous, and, and but in, still the good son in comparison to my brother. Yeah. And you survived. You I did. <laughs> I, did I, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll see how the, the, all the, the drugs affect me later in life. But at this point, <laughs> it's, it's just, yeah, it's fine. So. Yeah. Um, any topics you want to talk about? Uh, let's see. We've kind of covered a lot. 
I don't have any particular topics. I'm happy to be an artist. It's weird, but I'm definitely not encouraging anyone else to be one unless they absolutely can't be anything else. There are just, there are a lot of creative fields now. There's a lot of opportunities for creatives in computers and filming and gaming is really big here. You know, all the people who design games. I mean, they're being an independent artist is just, I don't know. It's just really a ridiculous career. Well, you know. But that was also one of the things that I was fascinated by when I decided to do this podcast, which is that like everybody thinks when somebody says, I'm going to art school, you think you're going to be an artist. But yeah. many of those people that go to art school end up doing all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I me, mean, they do the weirdest jobs. <laughs> I know, I know one person I graduated from my MFA program who's now a mortician. Like, great, <laughs> you know? I bet I'm his not, his clients look beautiful. <laughs> I would imagine. I believe this person was a painting major. So yes, I would uh -huh. imagine this person does a very good job of doing that. So like the the thing about like, you know, like you go to law school or medical school, like that's a pretty straight line that you have chosen. But like getting a any sort of creative arts or anything like this kind of degree is not a straight line. It's going to take no. you wherever. Like I know people that do like window displays and, and things yeah. like this for for. For the, and they got their masters in in art and there's i mean there's so many careers that are, the only option is not being an artist but you could be creative and find a creative avenue that doesn't necessarily hold all of those tropes of like this you know the horrible artist lifestyle I, you know i think every career is creative and we've kind of taken a lot of the creativity out of it you know when you go to school uh, that's not true. My wife is an accountant. There is no creativity <laughs> in her job. I don't know. There probably is. You're just not seeing it. I, but she she can go home and she doesn't take it with her probably, right? It is true. Yes, she is able to like at the end of at 5 p.m. She just shuts it off and it's done and doesn't worry or think about it, which is, a, yeah. I don't have that. I mean, my that's the problem with having your work at home is I work all the time. You know, I, you know, I, I you try say to problem, I say life. blessing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a blessing as long as your friends and family are okay with that, you know. What? Like there was a time in my life where I didn't have the resources to do my work at my home. And so, and that was a tough time, you know, where I had to use a yeah. community, whatever, or go to use some facilities or kind of things, or just needed more space or whatever. And so like, there are certain industries that I think are really great because they don't need a lot of stuff. They just need yeah. like space and stuff like this. I mean, yours probably a bit more space intensive. Yeah, I need a lot of stuff too. It's not just one, you know, it's wax and mold making and glass working it's just a lot of materials and time but i mean i don't have a huge space my studio is about four or five hundred square feet inside but then i have an outdoor space with my kiln and you know it's pretty good yeah 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 all right i have a question for you though so like i noticed you have a lot of places that you say notable collections how do were you able to get into these collections well i was in a teapot show and the CAM Foundation, it's a husband and wife from, I think they're from California. They have a collection of 18,000 teapots and teapot-related art. 
So that was just a fluke. They bought my teapot. <laughs> I'm in uh, Amazon's collection because I was a artist in residence at Amazon. I was going to ask about that, but go on. Yeah. So as an artist in residence, you have to donate a piece and I donated, donated a piece to them. This is a fairly new residency that they do. It was really great for me. It's like a 10 weeks. I had to be in the, well, that work environment two days a week. And I hadn't been in an office, you know, for years in an office where people were working. And it's just such a strange experience because at Amazon, people, it seems like they don't have desks. You'll see people on their computers in a, on a bench in the hallway or in the lunchroom or, you know, they're kind of all over the place. It was good for me to do that. I did not actively seek out being in collections. It just kind of happened. Well, but wait, but you just brought up something that I think is a, a, a sort of, a, again, one of those sort of things we don't talk about in the arts world. Like I've got things on my, you know, in the collection of kind of thing on my CV. And what everybody thinks is that those pieces were bought, like that that collection sought oh. you out. Oh. And, and oftentimes in reality, in the arts world, it means that the artist had to donate something to them in order to put that on their CV. So I have a bit of both, right? The the teapot was bought. Amazon was a donation as part of the, you know, I did get $10,000 for the residency. So, uh, you know, you could say, was, you know, that was paid for. That was paid it was for, paid yeah. for. It's a mix. Sometimes it's okay to donate your work. If it's going to be in a popular collection, most people are not going to see your work ever. But if it's in a collection, they might see it, right? I trained myself to take my own photographs. Because first, I'm cheap. <laughs> I didn't want to have to carry my heavy glass to somebody and have them photograph, you know, for $100 or $50 a pop. I realized early on that most people are never going to see the artwork. They're only going to see the photograph. And you have to take at least decent photographs because that's what they're going to see. And it's been really good for me because when I take photographs, even though my photographs are, you know, you being a photographer, I know you could nitpick their problems with them. It's been good for me because I learn about my work as I'm taking photographs of it. You know, what's the best angle and what, you know, makes me think about, you know, why did I make this and what is this about? And it makes me take the photographs to try to relay that in the piece. These days, I mean, that's 100% true is like the documentation is generally what people are going to see because of course, websites, social media, all these other sort of outlets, you know, very few people are ever going to see our art in real life, but they will, you know, virally spread around images of our yeah. works throughout oh, yeah. the internet. And so for they, good or bad, right? <laughs> uh, I hope you know, not that's, for bad. Well, yeah, I mean, people copy. That's that happens or they see an image and they don't realize it. And then it comes out in their work and they're I mean, I don't worry about that. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I haven't worried about that in a very long time. There was a time that I worried about that. But websites are really important. I mean, I would recommend your students that they get a website early on. My husband's a computer person and he wanted to get my domain and get a website, I don't know, 20 years ago. And I said, like, what do I need that for? I mean, seriously, I had no idea where the future was going to. And I thought, that's just, you're just getting in my way. You know, I just want to make my work and don't. But it turns out that that's how people find you. 
Oh yeah. My big, my big advice when it comes to that kind of stuff is always buy your name. Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't when I was young, when I was younger, well, I bought my proper name, MatthewDoles.com. I bought that. No problems. But of course, most people know me as Matt Doles. Right. But some drummer in Iowa is named Matt Doles. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> I know. It's just like totally ridiculous. And so he owned MattDoles.com for 13 years. Now, oh. he, he had his drumming, drumming in Iowa thing for like three years of that, but he just owned it for 10 years and did nothing with it, but he wouldn't let me buy it. Because well, he's it. an artist too. He thought he'd get back to it, right? <laughs> well, he, but he you lost have it, it now. I have yeah. it now. After 13 years of putting it on back order every year, I finally <laughs> have it. So now I own Congratulations. Both Matt Doles and Matthew Yeah. I yeah. am very sorry to Matt in Iowa, but, <laughs> you know, got to be tenacious. Yeah. I really think art is about communication, right? And you have to communicate. If you're going to work in a little room, then don't get ticked off when nobody buys your work or nobody finds you. I mean, that doesn't work that way. You just have to get your work out there. And a website is an easy way to do that. It may cost you money, but it, even just a page that has your picture or a picture of your artwork with a web address, a way to contact you, it's just essential, <laughs> I think. It is, but it falls into the character of, Putting up a web page with just pictures and no text won't make it so that search engines find your website. So like well, there's that balance of having to make a beautiful website, something that's evocative and pretty. It, you know, it could just be a full page thing that's a beautiful picture. But if you don't have any text on it, the search engine will never find you. So like it, right. that that nature of the the fact that we as creative people, not only do we have to make beautiful things, but we also have to find the right keywords and text to put on our website for search engines such a fucking pain in the ass <laughs> well it. It, that's why i say it's a ridiculous business model because we're everything right if you're a independent artist you are the creator the manager of content the marketer the you know the web person the everything you're everything you're the business manager you pay the bills you know it's like inventory is, shipping right shipping oh my god shipping don't get me into shipping that's just i mean shipping glass especially is really annoying i mean oh, because yeah. it has to be packed so well and then it's expensive and you have to insurance Fuck, yeah i, I have it. i have business insurance i mean i trying to do this the right way you know i have a business license and business insurance and it, ugh, it's crazy but i i wouldn't i wouldn't change it for the world <laughs> it'd be nice if i was making enough money i could hire people to do those things but it doesn't it, it doesn't make sense at this point i'm never going to want to be making so much work that i'm not making it myself i mean that part is important to me i don't want to have my work produced in China or Taiwan or North Carolina, wherever. I don't want, you know, I just want to make it myself, which means I just have to take it as it comes, right? And Lovely. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Nice to talk to you, Matt. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. 
We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services. And the music was created by Pete Bybee. As we all know, funding for the arts is incredibly important and you've got to support and appreciate it when you have it. So I'd like to give appreciation and a thank you to the EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway, which has been supporting the Wise Fool Arts podcast for the past year. They are working in an effort to work together for a green, competitive and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank Hunt Kastner in Czech Republic and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website at wisefoolpod.com. Mm-hmm.